This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, March 23rd, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. As war continues in Ukraine, I spoke with Cato Senior Fellow Tom Palmer, who is in Poland, assisting with efforts to move medical and other supplies into Ukraine and move people out of Ukraine. We spoke yesterday. What are you doing in Poland, Tom? Well, I, I got back to Poland at 2.30 in the morning, I should say back to Warsaw, uh, after a long drive with uh, two Ukrainian uh, families and, uh, and a friend who's uh, accompanying me, uh, helping them to escape from Ukraine. Uh, I've made uh, a number of supply runs. So our libertarian friends in Ukraine and across Europe have been gathering supplies for hospitals, uh, children's wards, um, all kinds of things, medical gowns, surgical equipment, and so on, uh, because there's a country under attack, invaded by a great power that is utterly merciless and is uh, deliberately attacking civilians, civilian infrastructure, and so on. So we bring things in across the border, uh, and when we come back, we take people and then deliver them to family or uh, refugee centers so they can go on to Germany or Spain or Italy or Denmark or wherever they're intending to go. <clears throat> so this is something, and by the way, I've worked with a number of former Cato interns. I'm very, very proud of them for stepping up to the plate and doing what needs to be done. You mentioned former Cato interns who are assisting in this process of moving in supplies and moving people out. Uh, what of the broader liberty movement, especially uh, free marketeers, uh, people who believe in liberty in the rest of Europe? Well, I've been really heartened uh, by the way people have stepped up to the plate. This is obviously a humanitarian issue, but it also has much deeper roots. It's a struggle between those who believe in individual rights, limited government, pluralism, uh, liberal democracy, and naked collectivism power, absolute power, and genocide, because this is not just an interaction of great power politics. The Kremlin has made it clear they are motivated by an ideology of collectivism. That you, there are no Ukrainians. They are one people, and they will absorb them and exterminate and root out any elements of that one people that they consider to be enemies. And so this is really our fight and our struggle and the uh, classical liberals, libertarians, freedom advocates across Europe uh, are, are actively participating with our partners and friends in Ukraine. And I have to say one other element, it's personal. These are my friends. So the extent to which this is a fight between collectivism and individual liberty, Ukrainians do not want to be part of Russia. Vladimir Putin says there's no such thing as Ukrainians. Um, do people in this country, uh, in the U.S. Uh, and other other countries that are watching this unfold, what don't they understand about that? Well, we could distinguish a number of, of issues that need to be sorted out, and sometimes they get mixed up. So should the U.S. have a no-fly zone? Should the U.S. get involved in military conflict with Russia? Really, that's one issue, and I think there's an answer to that that I lean toward, I strongly endorse. Uh, we don't want World War III. But there's no reason mixing that up with apologia 
for naked collectivism, violence, brutality, and murder. That is what Putin is. Not, I would point out, what Russians are. And it's very important. And our Ukrainian friends make this point. They reach out to the Russian people. You are being lied to. You are being used by someone in a small group of ideologues, not that they don't have support in Russia, uh, that's clear, but that they are using the Russians. Two nations are being destroyed at the same time by the people in the Kremlin. Um, so we should distinguish that. You can be in favor of non-intervention and not be a Putin apologist. Some people miss that distinction, uh, but I think it's important to keep that very, very clear. Putin has told us over and over what he intends. It's not like it's a secret. And the apologists keep trying to explain, oh, it's really about balance of power. Really, they should just listen. Listen to what he says. His his uh, presentation July of last year, there's one people. This is quite clear. In his interviews on RT, Russia Today, which is a 100% Kremlin uh, propaganda mouthpiece, in which he said, well, America, you know, they're individualistic. They believe in individual person. We are collectivists. That's our difference. And what's interesting is he personally is not a collectivist. He wants everyone else to be collectivists so they can be slaves. But he's one of the, he's probably the richest human being on the planet. He enriches his friends. There's no collectivism in that sense, no shared future. These are vicious, selfish bastards. But they use collectivism as they always do to enslave all the rest of us, to submit to them, claiming that it's a collective identity which they don't actually share. It's a, collectivism is a tool to enslave and, and oppress other people. And this is really what we're seeing right now. It's so stark. Poland uh, and Moldova uh, sort of stand out as countries that have accepted uh, a very large volume of refugees yes. in into the country. Uh, in Poland, it's, it's roughly equivalent to 5% of the Polish population. Um, and if, if you look on social media, you see signs that uh, appear to be quite welcoming to uh, refugees to say, hey, chill out, essentially chill out here for a bit. It's going to be OK. Um, you make a point of saying that 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 welcome it will not last, that uh, right now it, we're, it's it's they're escaping a war zone. So it's very understandable that uh, the to allow systems to be stressed a bit in getting people out of there. But but why do you say that? Why do you say that welcome will not last? What does that mean? Well, it's like welcoming your cousins into your home when they've had a problem. Let's say a hurricane destroyed their home. Uh, you would do that. Maybe a year later, you wouldn't be so happy about them camping out in your living room. And even that's on a family basis. So imagine when they don't speak the same language or maybe have a somewhat different religion. Uh, so that's why the, our Polish... Uh, Libertarian partners have been very active at making sure that the policies are not stupid. Let them work. And in this regard, the Polish government has done the right thing. All you need is a simple stamp saying in your passport, you came from Ukraine. You can work. You can walk in and work on the same basis as any Polish citizen. This is correct. This is the right thing to do. Because if they just are in refugee camps getting uh, food shipments, they will be perceived as parasites, as a burden on the Polish people. Now, far-right extremists in Poland are already making this argument. How come they're getting this stuff? 
Uh, but fortunately, it's a tiny minority view. If they don't allow the economic freedom to produce wealth, to support themselves, uh, then those extreme far-right collectivist hateful voices will become louder and louder. So that's why I think that our friends who understand these things are preparing uh, for the longer term, immediately helping, uh, going to train stations to welcome people, delivering food, opening their homes, and so on. But recognize that that kind of welcome eventually wears off. And it's important not to have refugee camps. You do not want to be like Lebanon with decades and decades and decades of Palestinian refugee camps. These become centers of extremism. Uh, they're unhealthy in every way. So the good news is our Polish friends especially, they, they get it. And they want to make sure that Ukrainians can have the dignity of working and be seen as pulling their weight and supporting themselves. That's the key. If you get that wrong because of some kooky welfare state extremist mentality, say, no, 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 you have to just feed them for free. You're setting yourself up for effectively social dissolution and political crisis. One year, two years, five years down the road. You have been uh, moving supplies into Ukraine and people out of Ukraine, uh, part of a, a long uh, caravan, it seems, uh, of people essentially doing this same thing. Among the people who have chosen to remain in Ukraine, and I know it's it's devastating, but what does their attitude look like to you? What is their level of resolve uh, in this situation? Obviously, I don't talk to millions of Ukrainians, but those with whom I do speak, some people I've known for years, and typically just me talking to them on the streets, um, they do not want to be forcibly incorporated into a dictatorship. And one thing that's quite remarkable, the resolve, uh, there's a lie that has been perpetrated by the Kremlin and its apologists. That this is just about conflict, internal conflict between Russian speakers and Ukrainian speakers. I just want to be very blunt. That's not true. The people who have been disproportionately killed are Russian speakers. Most of my Ukrainian friends who are on the front lines in many cases grew up speaking Russian, not Ukrainian. They learn Ukrainian later in life, but they speak Russian with their parents. My friend Maria, who's from the very the Donbass region, her father was killed by Russian artillery fire. They're Russian-speaking Ukrainians. That's a lie that this is a conflict between Russian speakers and Ukrainian speakers. Russian speakers are being exterminated by the Kremlin if they do not submit to the Kremlin's claim to be the only true voice of Russian speakers. What they want is to speak Russian or Ukrainian or English or whatever in a free country, a country that has a place for everybody. So the fight, as I've seen it, is about a national identity of liberty, not an identity you have to be Ukrainian or Russian and you have to choose one or the other that like goes from head to toe which one you are. But to say, no, we have a space in our society for Orthodox, for Catholic, for Protestant, for Jew, for Muslim, for everybody. And there are Muslim Ukrainians also fighting on the front lines. Um, that it's, it's a struggle for liberty. 
not only a conflict or clash of identities. And I have to say that in the contemporary era where identity politics has come to the surface and culture war, I mean, even in the United States, it's such an ugly phenomenon that you have to be with me or against me. We can't live together, even though we have different perspectives or religions or ways of life, um, uh, that the Ukrainians are rejecting that in big numbers. So the families, I brought out two families last night, Russian-speaking from Kharkiv, which is being annihilated by Kremlin forces. Uh, I did not speak with them in broken Ukrainian, but broken Russian. They don't speak Ukrainian. But the uh, elderly grandmother and her daughter and their cat were escaping. The other family from Chernovitsi also could not speak Ukrainian. Uh, they are Russian-speaking, a mother and her daughter, and they are very clear, and they were very direct. We don't want a dictatorship. That is what Kremlin is offering us. We want to live in a free society. How are you doing all this? Uh, in our text messages back and forth, you had said, oh, I'm going to go buy a car tomorrow and uh, drive it back into Ukraine. How are you, how are you doing all of this? Uh, well, some of my own money, so I, I put in some of my retirement money <laughs> into this, as have many others as well, um, but also to fund these purchases of supplies and to support our libertarian partners in Ukraine so that they are not among the casualties uh, of this war. We've evacuated some of the women uh, who are uh, moving into neighboring countries but still being active. Um, we've raised through Atlas Network about $1.3 million so far, uh, and we have put 100% of that uh, to Ukrainian partners. So it goes straight to them. We have a vetting process. It's very important. We want to do everything correctly. But when they have a need for uh, a children's hospital that has been under attack, uh, and I should point out the Kremlin is quite merciless in this regard. Uh, that comes to us. We are able to vet it. And then we have partners in Europe who provide the supplies that we drive it through. So I've bought two cars now. One is still in Ukraine. I drove it in, gave it to people who moved it further in because we have a network of supply nodes and delivery kids. Uh, and I have to say that these uh, kids who make the, the immediate deliveries under fire uh, one of our cars was uh, uh, really riddled with uh, machine gun bullets and, and artillery fire. Fortunately, the kids survived and got out. Um, but uh, this is all being done voluntarily. So Atlas Network has, has raised for this uh, about $1.3 million so far. And I'm hoping to raise more. We're very careful. Of course, we only provide non-lethal humanitarian aid. But it does include protective gear for ambulance drivers, uh, medics, emergency workers who are hit by snipers. Um, the guy I evacuated yesterday uh, was Polish, went back to Poland. He's an ambulance driver. He delivered an ambulance because in Mariupol, all the ambulances were captured by uh, Russian forces. And the ambulance drivers and medics kidnapped and taken to Russia. Uh, so that there are no ambulance services or, or 
professionals who can do that. So he, he, out of his own pocket, provided a vehicle. Tom Palmer is a Cato Institute Senior Fellow and Executive Vice President at the Atlas Network. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.